Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 372, 10 provisions every owner architect agreement should include with New York City construction law attorney, Robert Herman. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and so much more, all for free at rcat.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Robert Herman, welcome back to Entree Architect Podcast. Uh, Mark, I'm very happy to be back, and thank you for inviting me to come back and, and speak again. You're very, very welcome. Robert was here in episode 345, where we discussed several common legal issues for small firm architects. He shared his origin story back then. So if you want to hear where Robert came from and how he got to where he is today, go back to episode 345 and listen to that episode. It was definitely worth listening to. So go back and listen to that. Um, we talked mostly about how to avoid legal entanglements by simply focusing on your processes and, and managing client expectations. Uh, today, I invited Robert back to focus on one very important issue that we all deal with as small firm architects, the owner-architect agreement, which probably, in my opinion, is the number one tool for managing client expectations is that owner-architect agreement that we use. Um, and so that we're going to have a little conversation about that, how we can focus on the things that need to be focused on, how to 
how to, uh, to use that document in order to stay out of trouble and manage our client expectations as well. So before we get into that conversation, Robert, let me introduce you again, just so anybody who doesn't know who you are will now know who you are. Who you are. Uh, Robert Herman is a principal at the law firm Offit Kerman based in New York City. He is the chair of the firm's New York construction law practice. He represents and acts as legal counsel to a number of architects and other design and construction professionals, advising them on the general business matters and representing them in litigation, arbitration, and mediation. Robert is a member of the Professional Practice Committee of the American Institute of Architects, the New York chapter, and he's an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation, where he teaches advanced professional practice to third-year master's students. So if you want to learn more about Robert and his origin story and how he got to where he is today, go back to episode 345. Today, we're going to talk about owner-architect agreements. So Robert, um, why don't we jump right into that conversation about owner-architect uh, owner -architect agreements. Our audience is mostly small firm architects, a lot of small firm owners, lots of small firm leaders, um, and, uh, and we're all hopefully using some sort of legal agreement. And uh, I'd love for you to sort of talk about it. And maybe this episode becomes sort of that episode that everybody goes back to when they're preparing maybe their first owner-architect agreement or when they decide to update their current agreement, um, some of the things that we should be focused on and being aware of. So why don't we jump right into that, Robert? Sure. I'd be happy to. I think that whether you're working with an AIA agreement or your own letter agreement, a lot of our small firm clients use letter agreements uh, instead of AIA agreements because they're less intimidating, more user-friendly. But whether, regardless of the agreement, I think there are anywhere from you know nine or ten or eleven uh, uh, issues that come up often in contract negotiation uh, that uh, you need to be aware of to uh, negotiate a good agreement. Uh, if you're writing your first, if you're writing the agreement, you want to make sure the provisions work in your favor, so to speak. Uh, and if you're negotiating with an owner who sent their own agreement or is editing your agreement, you need to understand the legal ramifications of these different provisions that come up in negotiation all the time. Um, uh, I had a, a talk once where I said 11 things every architect needs to know, and it's really the issues that come up in contract negotiation constantly. They're just a, repetition of, of, of issues that come up all the time. And I'm happy to go through some of them now with you, Mark. Yeah, that would be great. So, so what do you think we start with? What's the number one thing we should be focused on? Well, I think there's really no one number one thing. Uh, I think it's really understanding how all of these different issues work to uh, terms uh, in the contract work together and how if you uh, don't agree on one term and may impact how you write up one term and may impact your liability under a different provision. So yeah. I don't think there's one provision, but I think I'd start with standard of care, uh, which is very important because the AIA uh, does have a standard of care now in their AIA agreements, which is basically that you're working to, at the level of work uh, responsibility of architects doing the same kinds of projects in the same lo locale. I think it's a very important concept to understand that your standard of care in a New York City, for instance, where I am, and if you're working on a high-end residential project, 
your standard of care is measured by other architects doing that, whereas if you're in Kansas doing a, a farmhouse, it's going to be a different standard of care because there'll be different expectations about the level of detail in your plans, uh, the role contractors might play in design build. Uh, so it's important to understand, you know, how the standard of care works and also owners often try and change that standard of care. Um, and that goes to, they're saying, well, you know, you told me you're the, you're the best architect for my project. So, right. uh, you know, why won't you say that? Uh, so they try and put in, you know, services, first class services, uh, best services, uh, services, you know, e equal to the you know, national standard they'll try and impose sometimes. So I think that, you know, this impacts your potential liability uh, for negligence. The higher the standard of care that you agree to, the, the easier it is for someone to claim that you uh, breached that standard. So I think that, you know, right off the bat, that's one of the early provisions in the AIA agreement. And it's important to understand it and to realize that making a, a change, changing one word, uh, could easily impact your potential liability. Yeah, I mean, the very often our clients for small firm architects are learning uh, a lot about their their projects and what they think they should expect from from uh, uh, sources other than the architects, right? That HGTV and and magazines and um, and that kind of thing. Maybe maybe uh, friends and family are sort of advising them, and and they have a specific expectation of what to expect from an architect, and very often. It's way more than uh, than we do, right? Way more than than we should do, um, and that standard of care protects us from that expectation. That's right. I mean, we talked about this in the last uh, program when that is managing expectations. But you're right; they have a higher expectations, and so you don't want that translated into a, a paragraph in your agreement that somehow. Uh, uh, gives the owner that extra uh, edge, so to speak, with a higher standard of care. Right. Does this, um, this is this this standard of care? Um, does this also sort of as a warning to some of us who present maybe in our websites or our marketing material, saying that we are the best or we have superior service? Are those things that we should be concerned with? Uh, absolutely. I think you need to, you know. Make sure your website doesn't, you know, represent you in a way that you can't stand behind when you get into negotiating a contract. Um, so uh, you don't, you want to avoid, um, you know, there's certain words you want to avoid. I can get into later. I have a list of words that every architect should avoid, and we can get into that later. But okay. uh, you certainly want to make sure that your website doesn't over oversell yourself uh, or your LinkedIn page or what or, or otherwise. Uh, you don't want to. Uh, you don't want to oversell because it just makes it more difficult to negotiate an agreement. Right, right. Okay, great. Um, so can, uh, standard of care is the, is, uh, the first one we, we should be paying attention to. What's, the, what's another one? Well, the second one, which obviously a lot of architects pay focus on, which is ownership of work product. Uh, and the issue there, of course, is how do you negotiate with owners who, quote, want to own your work product? And yeah. uh, the, the, the question there is really, there's sort of a knee-jerk reaction. I this is my intellectual property, and I won't give it up to anybody. Uh, but I think you also have to be realistic in the projects you're dealing with, and how important is uh, the intellectual property rights that an owner might want to have from you in terms of 
having the taking over the copyright, for instance, and and you give up your rights, or uh, it goes to uh, how they can use your plans in the event you uh, are terminated for some reason. Uh, and I just think that although obviously you you take pride in your work and you want to own the intellectual property of what you create. The real question is, you know, how important is it on that particular project? In other words, if you're doing a particular, you know, a, a residential apartment, um, it's unlikely that, you know, you're going to replicate that design necessarily somewhere else. And so if you had to give up that rights, uh, it may not be the end of the world for you. So I think you just have to look at intellectual property issues that owners often pick up on because they say, I paid you, I should own what I paid for. Um, I think it just needs to look at it in the context of each uh, each project and really how important is the intellectual property, how important is it for you to be able to take some of your details and use them again. And so there are ways to give the owner certain rights at the same time preserve for you uh, rights to use uh, details that you bring to the to the project. In other words, if there's certain unique elements that you bring to this pro that you develop for a particular project, maybe you can agree that I won't give I won't use those somewhere else. But to the extent that you bring your own details that you worked, one of the reasons owners hire you presumably is because they've seen your other projects that look maybe similar to what they want. So on the one hand, they like what you've done before, and they want something similar, and yet they don't want you necessarily to be able to do this thing again, uh, this project again somewhere else. And so I think it's a negotiation to uh, work who owners who do want to uh, somehow more rights to your plants is to carve out for yourself what it is you can use later uh, if you are giving up your rights, if you're forced to give up your intellectual property rights, how do you can negotiate uh, the ability to continue to use certain details that you have developed for in, in prior projects uh, so that you're not constricted in the future uh, from doing, you know, the kind of work that you you were doing that attracted this client in the first place. Um, do do so you, I think, do you, Robert, recommend that we, that in our, in our standard agreement that we claim full ownership of that intellectual property and then negotiate as necessary, or do you think it's not that important? Well, I think going in, I would start off with the proposition that you own the intellectual property and that you're licensing the right to use it. Uh, I think that's a good way to start. And then many owners will accept that. And then if, um, uh, the, if they come back and they want to own the intellectual property, you might be able to negotiate maybe a different kind of license for them to use so you retain the ownership, but they get more rights to use your plans. Uh, so it's a negotiation, but I would certainly start with the basic premise of the AIA agreements, which is what you create is your intellectual property and you have the copyright interest in those plans. Uh, whether you register them or not, you still own those rights. Uh, and I think that's a fair starting point. Yeah, that's a common question that comes up often in our community. So that's a good one. What's a what's a third one? Uh, limitations of liability, um, and this this ties into insurance and indemnification. Uh, limits of liability, I think, are obviously very important to try and have in your agreements. Uh, there is one limit of liability that's in the AIA standard agreements called the consequential damage waiver. Uh, which is very important in most projects. Not every project uh, is this important, but the consequential damage waiver uh, basically 
protects you from claims. There, there are really two kinds of damages in the world of architecture. Direct damages and consequential direct would be uh, they have to rebuild the wall that was designed improperly and uh, you, know, you have to pay for that cost. Uh, that's a direct damage from a negligent design. Same problem, but they can't open the store because the wall has to be rebuilt and they lose wall, they lose, they pay rent for the time they're not in the store. They uh, lose um, hundreds of thousand dollars of profit because they couldn't open for Christmas. Um, so those are co what they call consequential damages, or it could be rent your, someone's paying on another apartment or house while you're renovating their house or apartment. And those damages, although they can be covered by insurance, uh, can be very, very high, potentially high, depending on the project. If you're doing institutional work or cultural institutions, there's a lot of risk because if the schools can't open the dormitories or the concert hall can't open. Uh, so I think it's important to really fight to keep that consequential damage waiver provision. A lot of owners try and uh, take it out. Um, and again, it's negotiable because if you can manage to keep, for instance, if they want to take out the consequential damage waiver, maybe you can agree that, uh, you know, to the extent that there's insurance coverage, uh, then the consequential damage waiver doesn't apply. So at least you're limiting your liability to the insurance that you are carrying, even if you don't have that waiver. So again, it's a provision that's very important to have if you can keep it in. And if you can't, because the owners want to say, well, I should be able to recover damages if you're, if you're negligent, uh, then the answer is to try and limit the liability. And that also goes to adding a provision that's not in the AIA agreements. And that is to try and limit your liability to your avail either av ideally available proceeds of insurance that you would have at time of settlement, or if that doesn't work, the limits of liability that you're entitled that you're required to carry per the agreement, because the agreement does provide the AIA agreements provide for setting out your insurance limits. And so you also, besides the waiver of consequential damages, it's important to write in if you can to your initial draft a limit of liability, uh, and I would try, if you can, to get it to available proceeds so that if your policy has somehow been used up in part, you're limited as to what exposure you have, or if that doesn't work, at least to the limits that you're required to carry. Some clients of ours on smaller projects are able to get liability limitations to their fees paid, uh, which is wonderful. Um, so. Uh, Limitation of liability obviously is very important because it's tied into your insurance uh, and you ideally do not want to ever find yourself in a situation where you could be exposed for a claim that might exceed the insurance coverage you have for professional liability insurance. Yeah, that's an important one. I, I have in my agreement that my liability is limited to my fee. It's, it's never been um, pushed back against. I do residential uh, renovations and alterations work. Um, and it's, it's protected me a few times where I've had a client, um, you know, a, a contractor create an issue and, and become entangled in a, in a lawsuit. And as the architect get pulled into that lawsuit, that's not really our issue, but it's really an issue between the owner and the contractor. And then that liability limit uh, made us much less um, uh, let's say, uh, 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 we're not as attractive as a target, <laughs> a legal target, uh, once they saw the limit to our fee, 
uh, and therefore they they basically didn't come after us as architects. And so that's a very uh, important important one to. Well, I, I'm 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 very pleased to hear that you can get that provision that sails through on on your projects because. Uh, limiting the fees, uh, I find generally that it's it sometimes works, but a lot of uh, owners will push back on that. Residential on residential projects is obviously much easier to get yeah. that than a commercial project. But uh, also related to uh, the limit of liability, also goes to uh, the issue of indemnification because uh, this indemnification involves claims by third parties against another party and that party who is sued thinks it's the architect's fault. So they want to be indemnified and held harmless from that third party lawsuit. So sometimes we find um, that on the consequential damage waiver, for instance, the owners want to carve out third party claims for indemnification because they can't control, you know, what a third party who might be injured, who got uh, injured on a job site or uh, there's property damage to a neighbor who sues uh, the architect's client and then the client sues the architect, very often the owners will say, I'll give you a consequential damage waiver, but I have to carve out this indemnification um, obligation. And then that goes to owners wanting to impose an indemnity obligation on architects to hold them harmless from claims by third parties. Uh, and this is very important to understand because Indemnification, the last thing you want to do as an architect is have an obligation to provide a defense of your client um, before there's been a finding of your negligence because professional liability insurance policies do not provide a defense up front of uh, uh, an indemnity claim. Uh, that is different from general liability insurance where owners can be additionally insured on the architect's policy and therefore go directly to that commercial general liability policy but professional policies don't permit additional insureds and therefore you want to make sure that any indemnity provision that you are asked to sign by an owner does not have a defense obligation because if you have that obligation you could find yourself out of pocket substantial sums of money and your insurance company will not cover that what they will do is, if it turned out you're negligent, they will cover the legal fees that the owner incurred in prosecuting the claim against you or defending the third-party claim. So indemnification is something to really focus on because it does expose the architect, if it's not worded properly, to potential substantial damages. Um, there is in the A103 document, uh, sorry, the B103 document, the owner-architect B103, there is an indemnity provision written into that agreement that everybody should look at because it is written carefully so as to offer an indemnity that is insurable by a professional liability policy, and it also limits the indemnity uh, to, uh, I think, available proceeds or insurance limits. And so, uh, for some reason, the AIA chose to put that in one of their owner-architect agreements, but not in the B101 or the B104 um, or 102. I think it's just in the 103, um, but it's worth looking at because if you get into a negotiation on indemnification in your agreements, uh, it's a good reference point to look for and to offer as a potential uh, wording uh, for that provision. Okay, so B103 is where we should be looking for that. 
Hey, let's take a quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsor, ArtCat. If you're still on the fence about going to a trade show this year in person, then how are you going to keep up with the latest and the greatest in architectural products, right? That's where you get that information. Well, introducing ArtCat Alert. ArtCat Alert. You can get the scoop in this weekly newsletter. It's a free, like everything at ArtCat, it's free, and it's featuring leading manufacturers and their newest and best products every week. And since it's backed by ArtCat, you know you can begin researching these products for free and without registration right there on the website. You can just click the link, it'll take you right to the ArtCat website, and you can start researching for free. And there's also ArtCat Tech, get it? ArtCat Tech, a curated newsletter of the most interesting architecture stories of the week, a separate newsletter called Architect. So it's like Ar architect, but with an A, Architect, 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 get it? It's a curated newsletter and it has the most interesting architecture stories of the week. You can check out both of these newsletters at arcat.com slash architect. So it's A-R-C-A-T-E-C-T, arcat.com slash A-R-C-A-T-E-C-T. Please go visit Arcat today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. So we've talked about standard of care, ownership of work product, limitations of liability with consequential damages and indemnification. What's a, what's a fourth one? Well, I think the next one is actually insurance. Besides understanding your insurance for what you, what you as, architect, as an architect are carrying, I think it's also important to understand the insurance that owners and contractors need to carry because contractors, you need to be, the architects need to be additionally insured on contractors' insurance policies as additionally insured. And you need to make certain that the owners in their agreements with contractors require that because if you're just getting a certificate of insurance from a contractor that says you are additionally insured, if the owner hasn't required that in their agreement with the contractor uh, and you've seen an insurance company endorsement from an insurance company acknowledging that you are covered as an additional insured, that certificate of insurance will be worthless. So it's very important to, to really make sure that the owner in their agreements with contractors require that you be listed as additionally insured. And it's also important to understand the insurance that the owner needs to carry uh, which is typically what they call uh, property or builder's risk insurance, which covers catastrophic loss on a project site during construction. And typically the owners will carry that insurance and then they also hopefully will agree to what's called the waiver of subrogation, meaning that they agree that they will waive the rights of the insurance company to go after anybody else who might have caused the problem that caused the building to burn down. Uh, so it's very important to understand the insurance that owners are, should carry and how that insurance, if it's properly structured in the agreement, will provide a, a mechanism so that if there is a major loss on the project, uh, that the insurance the owner carries pays for it, uh, but nobody else then is caught up with years of litigation over the cause of that problem, uh, of that loss. Um, so it's, it's important not only to understand your own insurance, but to understand the contractor's general liability insurance policy and what it covers, which is basically personal injury, property damage, uh, and the owner's insurance requirements, because all of those work to protect the architect 
from potential claims uh, or gives them recourse to get coverage in the event they are brought into a lawsuit that's the fault of the contractor. So understanding all aspects of insurance uh, is something that I spend a lot of time talking about with clients and trying to get them to understand how important it is because it all goes to really peace of mind knowing what your exposure is uh, on any particular project. Yeah, so so as architects, we have our own um, errors and omissions, professional liability insurance. Uh, what you're suggesting is to make sure that we are covered under the owner and the contractor. Should we be requiring or requesting copies of those policies to ensure that we are included in those policies? I think what you want to, what you want to get from a contractor is a certificate of insurance and an insurance company endorsement that acknowledges the coverage of additional insureds. And then you want to simply see in the owner, you want to see the owner contractor agreement so that you can see the provisions that require the contractor to list architecture and or engineers and other design professionals as additional insureds. I think you don't need to see the policy. I think you want to see um, uh, the contract language that requires the owner to, to do this. Uh, and also, there should be provisions in the owner contractor agreement that often refer to the con owner's uh, insurance owner's insurance obligations. So I think the what I would recommend is simply getting access to, and a lot of our clients often don't do this, get to see the contract between the owner and the contractor, because first of all, besides the insurance issues, it may have other provisions that somehow uh, attempt to modify or define your services that would be inconsistent with uh, your agreement. So you want to see it and see it early on before it's been executed to make sure that what I'm talking about in terms of coverage as additional insureds and the property insurance for the owner is all spelled out. Yeah, very, very important. That's a good one to be, be actually, they're all, they're all so interesting making sure that we go back to our documents and making sure that all of these items are covered. Um, we can, we have some time for maybe two, two, maybe three more, and then maybe we can wrap up with, with the rest of them very quickly, but let's dive into two or three more. What's, what, what's the fifth one? Okay. Well, I think I'll continue about two or three more quickly. One is just your consultant agreements, uh, making sure, that those agreements are consistent with your uh, agreement with your client. Uh, this is a problem because often you get proposals from consultants that have their own terms and conditions on the limit of liability, dispute resolution, arbitration, or litigation, uh, and uh, limitations of uh, liability and scope. And often uh, you get those in order to put your proposal to a client together, and then you go ahead and you sign your agreement with the client, and then you sign that agreement the consultant sent you, and then you realize later that it's inconsistent, that it doesn't uh, conform, uh, and you're suddenly limited to the liability of your consultant to $50,000, whereas you don't have one with your client. So uh, making sure that consulting agreements are consistent is very important, um, and I see that as often an issue because, uh, as I said, you get these proposals off of the, the small print on the back of the first page and has these terms and you don't pay attention to them and then they you accept them and uh, then it's problematic later. Yeah. Um, so that's, and then also just uh, understand the scope of construction administration services. The AIA has extremely good language defining your role as uh, when making site visits, when making payment application reviews, 
when doing submittal and shop drawing reviews. There are all sorts of good qualifying language that defines what you're doing and what you're not doing and what you're not responsible for. And again, it's very important to have those qualifications to make sure that if you do your own letter agreement that you include the kind of wording and language because it really does set uh, the parameters of what your responsibilities are. And it's very helpful later on when there's a claim that somehow the owner says, why did you approve this payment request? Uh, or why is there a subcontractor not being paid suing me? And you can say, well, it wasn't my obligation to look at how the contractor paid his subs uh, because that was a language specifically stated in the AIA agreements. And so, again, understand making sure that your scope of services is defined properly. And if you're not doing one of those things, say you're not doing payment requests, then don't have an agreement that says that. Uh, you, AIA agreements assume the architect will do an awful lot of things, uh, and sometimes you're not doing all those things. And if you're not, make sure they're not uh, they're removed and deleted from any standard agreement. Robert, what are your thoughts on architects not providing construction administration services? Uh, I think that that is dangerous. Well, the question is, if they're the design architect and not the architect of record, that's fine. If they're the architect of record, I don't see how, if they have any obligations to sign the project off at the end of the project, and that depends where you're working, I don't see how they can do that if they haven't had CA services. Uh, and I just generally think that it's not a good idea to be uh, not be involved in a construction administration to see where your design being carried out. Because if you're still the architect and your plans are being used, uh, you need to see what's going on. And if you're not doing it, uh, it could be a problem later. So I think the answer is I don't think you should agree to a project as architect of record. Uh, to uh, not have a CA uh, role. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think there's so much opportunity. Uh, I think there's so much liability that that is wrapped up in construction that you have no longer uh, have any ability to manage. Uh, and then the opportunities that come along with being uh, involved during construction administration in terms of uh, managing the client expectation and 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 the marketing side of that. We're making sure that. The client, when they're happy with what's going on, that you're receiving the benefit and the, and the credit for all the work that you've done, so important to be involved in construction administration. And I see small firm architects very often not providing that service or making it optional and then clients saying, oh, I don't need that. Um, I, I believe that it should be part of your services. It should never be optional. Uh, it should be part of what you do as architects. I, I see that happening where an owner says, you know, I love your designs, you know, the contractor's doing a great job, I really don't want to pay you to come for do CA services, and I think that that, right. that poses a major risk. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, what's the seventh one? I would say uh, uh, termination issues about use of plans and how to protect yourself. The owner has the right to terminate not only for cause, but for convenience in the standard agreements, and if you're Permitting the owner to uh, uh, terminate you for convenience. The question then is, you know, can they use your plans? And if so, how are you protected from claims? And so I think it's important to focus on the terms in the AIA agreement that provide for hold harmless and indemnification of an architect if the owner does use the plans without you, uh, without the architect involved. But I think it's, and sometimes owners try and negotiate those and change those provisions. But it's important if you are not going to be around and someone's using your plans, you want to make sure that 
Obviously, your title block has been removed. You're no longer an architect of record at whatever governing authority is involved. Uh, and that uh, if your plans are being used, you're being protected from claims that might arise from use because your name is somehow associated with the project. Um, so uh, that's an important uh, another area. And I'd say the final point I might pick up is dispute resolution, the endless debate about uh, should there be arbitration, should there be litigation. Um, mediation, which is non-binding as the first step, is always recommended. I recommend. I generally support arbitration for architects' disputes uh, because you want people that understand construction and you don't want to be in front of a jury or a judge that really doesn't understand uh, construction. Um, but a lot of owners want litigation and so it becomes a, a debate and insurance companies for architects are all over the place. Some of them actually prefer litigation, some prefer arbitration. So. Uh, but it is something you need to you know, focus on. Again, it depends on the project. If it's a big, big commercial project, you may be stuck with litigation with an owner. Uh, just have to be aware of what the consequences could be by signing an agreement that provides for that. So your recommendation for small firms is to try to get arbitration provisions. Yeah, it's private. Uh, it's generally less expensive. Uh, if you are suing for your fees, I don't think you want to be seen in court as suing somebody for their fees. It may not help your practice. Uh, but if it's private and arbitration, you can pursue that. And the same if you're being sued for malpractice, uh, it's better to be private. And in, again, in, with somebody who, uh, arbitrator or arbitrators who understand construction, I think is a, a much better approach um, than being in court. But again, it depends where you are in New York City. It would be a disaster to be in court because of the time lag involved. Uh, maybe in other places it might be different. But again, juries are not necessarily going to understand construction, and a judge may not be interested. So it's really better to be, I think, in arbitration. Right, right. Um, and we have three more. So why don't we just uh, just touch on each of the last three so that they have, they have the full list, and then we'll wrap things up. Sure. Um, well, one of them is understanding third. Uh, there's a provision in the AIA agreements that say that there are no that no uh, the, no third party has any rights under the agreement between owner and architect, and that's an important concept in the sense that you don't want this goes to often in if you're doing a condominium projects uh, or uh, off, maybe even office buildings. You don't want anybody like a unit owner in a condominium to somehow claim that they have the same rights that the developer who hired you has to bring claims because they think there's some uh, fault in the design of that uh, building. And so uh, you want to have this provision that basically says there are no third-party beneficiaries under this agreement. The agreement's between you and your client, and that is, um, you know, that's all that's, uh, that's the only parties and no one else has rights. Sometimes owners will want to give lenders rights under the agreement if there's a default by the, the client, and that may be acceptable. But you don't want to give any third parties any rights to step into the shoes of the owner, uh, your client, and have rights that the owner may have against you. Um, and then I think the other one uh, was, the last one was dealing with the issue of photography and publication rights. Uh, the AIA and confidentiality. Um, <clears throat> a lot of owners obviously don't want their don't want their projects published, and it becomes a negotiation. Obviously, it's important for you to be able, as architect, to be able to uh, publish your work. 
uh, and you you know promote your your work by showing your prior work, and so it becomes a negotiation, and often it's really a matter of trying to qualify what you you know what you can photograph. Uh, uh, what, how you can use it, whether you can use it just in a portfolio or whether you can put it on your website. Um, the confidentiality agreements also you would want to offer that we will not use the owner's name, we won't use their address in any of any reference to the project. Um, so again, this is something to negotiate at the beginning um, and uh, not to wait till the very end of a project where the owner may just say, no, you can't come in. I'm not going to let you in the photograph, or you want to get that right established in the agreement. And if the owners are going to refuse, say no, uh, then you have to decide, you know, do I want to do this project even though I can't ever make use of it in the future? Yeah, and that's, a, that's an important one as well, and, and very important to do that up front because it's much easier. Almost always you can get that up front unless you have a client that specifically. I've had in all my career, I've had one client uh, request to not have that in there, you know, to, to not allow that in there. And they're just a very private person that wanted their privacy and didn't want any photographs. Um, but that's much more difficult across the board to ask for that later, um, if, if uh, to get that later on. So um, the list here that I have is standard of care, ownership of work product, limitations of liabilities, and we talked about conse con consequential damages and in, uh, indemnification. Then we talked about insurance and making sure that you have uh, additional insured provisions, um, consultant agreements, uh, construction administration and how that works and, and your requirements there, termination provisions, uh, liability. Oh, actually, there's a question I had um, with termination provisions. Um, should, if we do terminate before our services are over, is there a specific uh, liability waiver additional document that we should have or is this covered in our agreement on how it's handled if well, we're terminated. If you have a standard AI agreement and you are terminated, you do have protection. Uh, but there's also important to keep in mind there's a provision that if the owner does terminate you for convenience, there's a provision to provide for a license fee to pay mm -hmm. the architect for the continued use of plans. And so that's something also to keep in mind that if you are agreeing to be an owner's right to terminate you for any reason or no reason, uh, and they want to keep using your plans, uh, then you should be demanding a license fee uh, for that use. Um, so um, that's important to keep in mind. Yeah, um, yeah very good. Um, and then the last, go ahead. Yeah. The last three is uh, dispute resolution, and make sure that you understand that, and, and arbitration for small firms makes most sense. Uh, third party rights, third party rights provision and then the last one was photography and your publication rights um, and I, I might yeah I just might add also yeah uh, if I if you give me a second here this, yeah absolutely we have I, to always, I always uh, there's a list of words that you want to avoid in your yeah, agreement that would be great uh, and they include words such as guarantee don't guarantee because you don't get insurance for guaranteeing or warranting something uh, if you warrant or guarantee you'll finish your plans by Christmas and you don't, you don't have insurance for that because insurance covers don't cover guarantees. Uh, highest, best, assure. I assure you uh, that I will finish this by Christmas. Again, those words are not insured. First class. Sometimes owners want you to be a first class architect. Well, what does that mean? Just means more problematic uh, liability exposure. Um, 
complete in every respect. Uh, often owners ask uh, to say your construction documents are complete in every respect. Well, they're not. They never are. Uh, and again, agreeing to that exposes, raises potential liability. Time of the essence, a, con a legal term that basically means if you miss a deadline, no matter how insignificant, you might be liable for breach of contract. Uh, as a designer with not, no control over a contractor, such a provision can be very dangerous. And so those are words that I always try and uh, tell people to avoid because it could either create no insurance or create a higher standard of care. Yeah, very valuable, very valuable. Um, in terms of the guarantees, should we have a no guarantees provision to, to highlight that, that, that even if we set it in the agreement, it, it, it uh, you know, clarifies it? Well, I don't think you need to say you're not any guarantees um, uh, unless the owner is trying to push you to guarantee something. I don't think right. you want to have, I don't think you need a negative saying that we're not guaranteeing anything. Right. Okay. Uh, you just want to be careful in terms of any schedules that you give. In other words, if any schedule you're offering on the project, you need to address, well, does the owner, you know, what's the owner's timetable to respond to, you know, uh, decisions? So if you're offering a schedule, you want to maybe incorporate and turnaround times for an owner so as to protect yourself from claims that the schedule's running late. So that's how you need to address these issues of, of guaranteeing you know, of schedule. You know, when you're offering any sort of commitment on time, how to, how to limit your exposure. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Super important. Uh, this is an episode that I think many architects can come back to. Uh, when they're pre preparing their, their starting, starting their own firms, right, in their first documents, make sure you've got these 10 items covered. Make sure these, this list of words, you're, you're double-checking, making sure you're handling that. If you have owner-architect uh, owner agreements that you've developed uh, in your own firm with your own letter of agreement or your own documents, um, make sure that you're covering each one of these items. Um, it's uh, a great episode, a great list of provisions that we should be looking for. Robert, thank you very much for spending the time here and, and going through this with us. My pleasure. I hope it will be helpful to your, your audience. Uh, before we wrap up, let's, uh, I want to ask you the one thing that small firm architects can do today to build a better business for tomorrow. I think what they, could, what they need to do is have a really good understanding of insurance and related indemnification issues because understanding how insurance works because it involves not only the architect but the contractor and owner uh, really would make a big difference in understanding and building a, a solid practice. Fantastic. His name is Robert Herman. Two R's, two N's, Robert Her Herman. Um, and the website, Offit Kerman, O-F-F-I-T, K-U-R-M-A-N.com, offitkerman.com. Robert, this was another great conversation. I appreciate you for coming back a second time and diving into this. Um, I appreciate you for your support of architects and for your sharing of knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. My pleasure to be here today. Thank you. You can access the show notes for this episode or share this episode with a friend. The link is entrearchitect.com slash episode 372. This might also be one that you want to save. So you can take that link, entrearchitect.com slash episode 
372 and drag it down onto your desktop. And next time you're putting together your owner architect agreement, you can listen to this episode and use it as a checklist. Make sure that you have each one of these provisions in your next owner architect agreement. EntreeArchitect.com slash episode 372 is that link to share and save. Entree Architect is proud to be a partner with the largest, most engaged AEC multimedia network on the planet, Gable Media. We are curating thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. If you haven't yet listened to our latest podcast release, Build Smart, I highly recommend that you pause this episode right now. Pause this episode, click pause, and go search for the show Build Smart on whatever you're listening to right now. You can also go directly to gablemedia.com and find the show there and subscribe. Build Smart is Patrick McLamey's new podcast where he shares his entire story of growing up from a young design associate in the late 1960s all the way through to his final day as CEO exactly 50 years later. CEO of HOK, yes, the international architecture firm HOK. It is the story of HOK and Patrick's story growing up in that firm. In every episode, Patrick shares specific lessons, specific lessons where he, that he learned along the way on how to design a world-class architecture firm. Go listen right now. Whether you are a firm of one or a firm of 1,000, Build Smart will very quickly become your favorite podcast. Listen and subscribe to Build Smart and all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Check out Entree Architect Academy membership, ready to edit business resources. Yep, they're there. Live monthly training, a supportive architect community, simple systems. Yes, our new business system program developed for small firm architects. It's all there included in the Entree Architect Academy membership. Our next expert training session will be construction law attorney, Jason Lambert, and he will be teaching on property liens and how architects can use liens to protect themselves and leverage them when you need to, to get paid. This is a topic that I knew very, very little about, still don't know very much about. I'm looking forward to this session. I never realized that architects can leverage liens as well. So the Entree Architect Expert Training Session is scheduled for May 5th, 2021. It's the first Wednesday of every month, the Entree Architect Expert Training Session inside the Entree Architect Academy membership. All live expert training sessions are included in your membership. And we, you also have access to all the past training sessions. Every expert training session we've ever done, every, every one of them is recorded. Well over 60, probably close to 70, one hour sessions covering just about every topic that you can possibly think of to build a better business, they're there. So come join us, visit entrearchitect.com slash join entrearchitect.com slash join to enroll today. So be well, my friends. Be healthy, happy, safe, and secure. Thank you for listening. Have a great week. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging. 
the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. And so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.